0: Welcome to Giving an Answer, the show dedicated to defending the historic Christian faith. I am your host, Harold Felder, and today the topic is Intelligent Design. To talk with me about this is Ted Wright. Ted has a bachelor's degree in anthropology, a master's in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he's professor of apologetics in Old Testament at Southern Evangelical Bible College. All right. Did I leave anything out? That's about it okay right. well i think i did leave something out is there something you want to add
1: well uh i, I like climbing mountains and uh taking risks. and and i have a son and a beautiful wife there you
0: go see man i, try to, I watch out for my That's guests right. because if your wife saw this and you That's didn't right. say that man I, I,
1: I, I, i'd be in deep water I'm, I'm looking out for you i'd be in hot water <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking out for. okay let's get right to it yes we're
0: talking about intelligent design so ted tell me what is intelligent design
1: absolutely uh, let me start off by saying that um, intelligent design has been in the news lately a lot. You may have heard about it on the uh, President Bush talking about uh, uh, the possibility of teaching intelligent design alongside of the traditional Darwinian model. And also just recently... What, what, in talk the, uh, a
0: little bit, bit about that for those who haven't been up-to-date on the news and uh, right. good stuff. Right.
1: Um, essentially, what uh, what he's saying is that uh, for years, I mean, since at least 1925, uh, since the Scopes trial, uh, in the American public schools, traditionally has taught when it comes to human origins, uh, they teach solely Darwinian evolution. And by Darwinian evolution, uh, what I mean by that is uh, the, the fact that everything that you see, every created thing that you see in the world, plants, animals, and everything, uh, are, are here, are got here by undirected natural causes, not by an intelligent creator or a or, you know, god. Uh, and that has been taught that way for years. But uh, recently, things have been coming into the forefront of scientific research that really challenge this. And uh, so President Bush is uh, making a statement that uh, there are other people who, in America who believe as well. And there's a recent Zoppie poll that shows that 71% of the public uh, in America favors teaching an alternative to the theory of, of evolution. And so President Bush is saying that he has no problem with teaching the controversy of uh, evolution and showing that there are alternative theories to the traditional Darwinian model. Um, so, intelligent design comes along, and uh, it is a, an exciting new field of inquiry. It's a, um, uh, it's, you know, although it's new, the, the term intelligent design is new and the whole movement is, is fairly new, um, it has roots that go all the way back to, um, you know, uh, in the Middle Ages. There have been, uh, by theologians, they have had uh, arguments for design. What I mean by that is that uh, the theologians have, are, have said that the world exhibits uh, characteristics of being designed by an intelligent creator. And the most famous one of all is, was put forth by a uh, man by the name of William Paley. And uh, he wrote a book in 1802 named nat- uh, called Natural Theology, and uh, people may be familiar with this uh, argument. It's called the Watchmaker Argument for yeah. God's Existence. Yeah. And uh, essentially the argument goes like this, that if you were walking in a field and you were you know, just seeing dirt and rocks and things like that, and all of a sudden you look down in the dirt and you find a, a gold watch. You're going to pick the thing up, but uh, you don't. You wouldn't. Re- you wouldn't come to the conclusion that that watch uh, just got there by chance that you open the lid up and you see the movement of the hands, you look at the back of it and there's gears, there's uh, things that make it go, the, the clock go around and round. So you don't deduce from that or you don't uh, conclude that that was just happened by chance. You know that there was a watchmaker. And that's what William Paley said, that uh, watches show evidences of watchmakers. Well he said that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the world and specifically uh, the mammalian eye, the eye, all of our eyeballs who have lens and the, the very specific all kinds of the iris and all that kind of thing. It shows evidence of of uh, adaptation of means to ends. In other words, that the eyes specifically adapted to see and to focus, and and this shows evidence of of design. Well, for um, for years, those arguments uh, were pretty much standard, and nobody disagreed with them. And then uh, along came Charles Darwin's uh, theory of evolution. The book is called On the Origin of Species, it was published in 1859, and the book was brought forth because uh, Charles Darwin uh, started out, he he went on a voyage uh, as a naturalist, although he was never trained as a naturalist, he was never trained to be a scientist, Uh, and oddly enough... What was his occupation? He started out uh, going to seminary. (laughs) Imagine that Charles. No, Darwin. I didn't know that. Yes, he did. Started out as a as a, a, a divinity student, but became disillusioned and became a sci- Wanted to become a natural scientist. Now you got to remember, this was in the 1850s and the 1840s in England, and in, during that time was was a lot of people. A lot of uh, there was a lot of amateur science going on, and Darwin was part of this Victorian era of amateur, amateur scientists. Uh, but there, you know, I say that, but there were some. Fairly good observations and some fairly good beginning science that was going on at the time. Now, what he's famous for is, of course, is his theory of evolution, and where he where he came up with it was he. Uh, the, the uh, boat that he was on called the Beagle, the HMS Beagle, sailed to the Galapagos Islands just to the west of South America, the west, this western part of South America. And he noticed that on these set of islands called the Archipelago, the Galapagos Archipelago, which is a series of islands uh, in, their east, in the eastern part of uh, uh, South America, uh, he noticed, and they took observations of these little birds called finches, but he noticed that on some islands the finches' beaks were shaped a little different than on the other islands and he noticed that these beaks seemed to be adapted to the individual birds so he came up with the idea that well if this is if this is the case on a small scale then uh... this is going to account for how we have the different kinds of animals that you see today the giraffe you know the elephant the lion the tiger That's fish a, big leap. a huge leap yeah big leap but of course Darwin believed that uh, uh eventually and uh, enough given enough time and enough research that science would eventually show this to be uh true uh and he had some he had even problems with it himself and it was a theory it was a hypothesis uh but he believed that eventually uh science was going to prove him right well here we are in the twenty first century and it's actually the direct opposite and even people who who initially agree with darwin admit that the mechanism for the Darwinian evolution and the mechanism is natural selection mutation and natural selection the mechanism cannot account for the uh complexity and the uh variety that we see today not just in the biological realm but you uh you take that mechanism and exp- extrapolate it around the into every everything invisible creation not just animals but stars and the universe and everything got here by chance by undirected natural causes now you asked me at the beginning um what is intelligent design and i'd like to uh just read from a, a book Written by one of the uh, really one of the forefront thinkers in this area is, is a guy who's got a PhD in mathematics and a PhD in philosophy. His name is William Dembski, and uh, he wrote a book uh, about this and and uh, basically outline four principles that I'd like to read to you here, four principles about intelligent design, exactly what is intelligent design and how does this kind of answer the question or answer the problem of the, of the Darwinians today. And this is what he says here, these are the four principles and I'll read all four and then I'll try to explain what I, the first couple that I think are very important. Number one, um, uh, intelligent design, they say, is a scientific and philosophical critique of naturalism where the scientific critique identifies empirical inadequacies of naturalistic evolutionary theories and the philosophical critique demonstrates how naturalism subverts every area of inquiry that it touches. That's the first principle. So, so you, are,
0: a, you are going to translate this for us. Yes, yes. Okay, so I'll right, try to put it right.
1: in layman's terms. Uh, so it's a scientific and philosophical critique of naturalism. Okay. And naturalism is the philosophy that nature is all that there is, that there is no God, there is no invisible world, there's no spiritual world. Uh, they just uh, posit uh, just among everything that nature is all that there is. And this is so written by who? This is written by William Dembski. Now, who is he? William Dembski is a mathematician and a philosopher. And this book, this uh, book, he is an intelligent design theorist, and he okay. actually came up with a, a an explanatory filter to detect intelligent design, and I'll explain okay. that in just a second okay. as well. Okay. Um, but Dembski actually edited edited this book um, that's a collection of essays by not just uh, not just like preachers or people who believe in the Bible. Uh, intelligent design theory includes mathematicians, biologists, uh, geneticists, people who are very very uh, very much in the hard sciences. Uh, chemistry, geology, uh, paleontology, embryology, I mean you can name it across the board, Uh, there are scientists that are really doing hardcore science that are questioning the very foundations of the Darwinian mechanism.
0: That's very, very important because I I want you to, you know, I want to make that evident that what you just said because we are led to believe that Christians or people who believe in intelligent design are just Bible thumpers. Exactly. That all scientists on the side of evolution, all scientists accept the fact that evolution is true, and it's just us ignorant Bible thumpers who disagree with that.
1: Exactly. And in logic, that's called a straw man argument, where uh, they will uh, build up a false image of, of a position and then blow that false image away, but that's not the position that we hold uh, at all. Um, So that's the first one, the first principle, is a philosophical and and, uh, scientific critique of naturalism. And I'm gonna unpack that in just a second. The second one is it's also a positive scientific research program known as intelligent design, for investigating the effects of intelligent causes and that's important that that you make this distinction that it that investigates the effects of intelligent causes this is what allows it to become a science because many people who object to intelligent design or the teaching of intelligent design say that well it's just you trying to bring in religion in the back door yeah that's what you always hear yeah but it's actually not that at all and it's a it's it's a scientific research program in which you can a- investigate intelligent causes uh, and then number 3 and 4 I'll just briefly mention here uh intelligent design is also a cultural movement for systematically rethinking every field of inquiry that has been affected by naturalism, reconceptualizing it in terms of design, and number four, a sustained theological investigation that connects the intelligence inferred by intelligent design with the God of Scripture, and therewith formulates a coherent theology of nature. So we won't talk about the last two, but the first two, I wanna unpack a little bit more if if I can. Uh, The first one, the critique of of, uh, philosophical, uh, or of uh, methodological naturalism. and, and then the second one, the positive research program. Let me start with the second one. Um, it's a research program that investigates the effects of intelligent causes. Now, um, do we know of any other science today that does that? As a matter of fact, we do. And there are, there are fields of inquiry that actually do this very thing. For instance, forensic science. Yeah. Have you ever watch the show CSI? Oh, yeah. I love that show. CSI, CSI,
0: New York, Miami. Exactly. I
1: think next week they're going to have like a yes. Pittsburgh
0: or you yes. know, Charlotte. Yeah, CSI, I, CSI, Charlotte, CSI,
1: right? I mean, what the, the point of CSI is they're trying to investigate the crime scene. They're trying to find out what happened at this crime scene. So they're investigating the cause. They find somebody dead late on the street. Okay, what do, they, what do they want to find out? They want to find out was this an accident? Did this person die by natural causes? In other words, was it a natural effect or was there murder involved? If there was murder involved, that means that there was somebody who was a murderer. Right. So they're investigating the effects of intelligent causes. That is what, that's exactly what they do. So that's one, that's forensic science. Artificial intelligence, which is a field of inquiry that that, if, uh, that investigates this, cryptography. Cryptography is very important today, especially in computer applications and uh, identity theft. Uh, 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 computer programmers who actually write programs to to encrypt programs uh, are based on intelligent causation. In other words, there's when they encrypt messages and things like that, they use this uh, these uh... this method of intelligent causation archaeology as well archaeology is an easy one i mean when you're an archaeologist and you go to a site uh... you want to look and you find what distinguishes a rock from an arrowhead, I mean, you know an arrowhead from a rock, well, what's the difference? Because the arrowhead shows evidence of design. It shows the evidence that somebody chipped away the rock to make an arrowhead. Well that's exactly what uh, intelligent design is doing. Uh, the, uh, the biggest one is, I think, the most interesting one is SETI, uh, S-E-T-I, and that what that means is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, Nat, I don't know if NASA's doing it but I, I know that there are some researchers in America and maybe in other parts of the world who are researching uh, or are trying to find out if there are uh, alien species living in other planets or in the in the solar system and it was actually popularized by a book by Carl Sagan which was made into a movie that starred Jodie Foster yeah uh, remember movie? The, the movie Contact. Contact well the whole premise of the thing is that, that um, they're looking for intelligent uh... messages from outer space and how do they do this they do it by they aim radio telescopes way out into deep space and by aiming these telescopes into deep space they're basically listening they're listening there's noise in space and there's all kinds of static. Now, what distinguishes static from an intelligent design or an intelligent message? They they know a pattern. Well, that's what they do. They're they're trying to detect patterns. So so essentially, this is what this is. Um, so whenever the methods of, uh, detect intelligent causation, the underlying entity that is involved is information. In other words, it's not just it's not just the thing that they're looking at, but the information content. It's kind of like if you have a um, if you have a box of Scrabble blocks, you know. Yeah. Uh, they all have letters on them. Um, and you can shake those up and throw them down. But it, imagine having uh, a, a, an entire Shakespearean play uh, that just fell out of a, a, shake, a Scrabble box. Well, you wouldn't just assume that that just happened by chance. You would, you would assume that someone who understood Shakespeare put that together. Well, the amazing thing is that there is incredible evidence, uh, not just of, of Scrabble, but DNA. DNA are uh, the, uh, basically genetic code, which every living thing has a, gen- has a genetic code, a DNA code. And the problem, though, uh, for the Darwinian mechanism is the Darwinian mechanism cannot account for the information content. It's not so much that you know you have protein and amino acids and, and protein molecules and things like this. The problem for the Darwinian mechanism is to try to explain that in terms of natural causation. Nowhere in nature do you find that uh, complex information found uh, in just by chance. It happens by intelligent causation. So this is what intelligent design does: is it it, it, it uh, investigates intelligent causes.
0: Well, I wanted to interject something there because when you were talking about Carl Sagan and what. That reminded me of was that in that movie Contact, the way they were able to determine that there was something out there, there was some intelligent life was a uh, series of prime numbers. Exactly. So they were like, there's this, and they were like in a series of prime numbers. So they said, well, okay, then that must be intelligence.
1: Mathematical code, exactly. Right, right.
0: However, the same Carl Sagan can look at DNA or can look at a brain cell which has Tons of information, and not consider that to be something in design, or not to consider that something that conveys information, or not consider that something the source of intelligence. Yet prime numbers, over and over again, represents mm-hmm. intelligence.
1: Absolutely, and that is the very that's the very farce of the whole thing is that. Um, It seems to be such overwhelming evidence on one side to show that there is an intelligent cause, you know, an intelligent designer behind the universe that we see and the the things that are created, Uh, but of course, you know, people who believe the Bible uh, can look at the Bible and say that uh, in in the the book of Romans, Romans chapter one says, uh, therefore, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. So, that people who say that they don't know there's a God, the issue is not so much the mind, the problem is the heart. They don't want to believe. They, uh, people intrinsically know that there is a God. But this intelligent design is basically uh, challenging, the whole intelligent design movement is designed to challenge and to unseat the naturalistic philosophy that pervades uh, modern academia. Uh, I mean, uh, they accuse uh, people who believe in uh, intelligent design of trying to foist their uh, view, religious views on, you know, the public. Well, it's actually the other way around because, uh, you know, Darwinian mechanism and and naturalism itself assumes that nature is all that there is. I mean, they they assume that methodological naturalism is that there is no God. You know, before the question is even asked, so you can't even look at nature without. Um, assuming that there's not a God. So what intelligent design is doing is it's a, um, it's a way to unseat that naturalism and to show how that it is totally unfounded uh, based on science and good philosophy.
0: Let me interject something here. Yeah. Sure. I, I watch TV way too much. I'm about to say a <laughs> lot, way too much. But what I find interesting is for instance, like I've been watching these reruns of uh, X-Files. Yes. And what I find so amazing is that you could have the X-Files and on one show, matter of fact on the same show, it can espouse a creator and evolution in the same show. I think the general perception is, not just on shows like X-Files, but in general society is that the two aren't aren't incompatible. People will will believe in both because people will say, well, okay, there could be evolution. Maybe it's God that started the evolution, so I think that's something called theistic
1: evolution. Exactly. How would you respond to that? Absolutely. Uh what's funny though is that the people who are the Darwinists, the uh, the people who follow Darwin today, uh one fellow just passed away, uh one of the most uh, foremost spokesman of Darwinism is a guy by the name of Stephen Jay Gould, who was at Harvard University. The other two are uh, a guy by the name of Michael Denton and the other guy's name is Richard Dawkins. Now these guys are hardcore Darwinists. They don't believe in evolution at all. I mean, they don't believe in creation at all, but but the people who are uh, saying that God used evolution, uh, they the, these evolutionists say that they basically don't have the guts to, uh, to you know, to basically... Uh, because you can't accept evolution without accepting that there is no god because it's it's inherent within Darwinian evolution that there is not a god so the people who are evolutionists don't want them in their camp uh, and they say that they're just basically cowards Another thing, too, is that the mechanism itself is uh, you might as well, you, when you say theistic evolution, and uh, two, you have to define what that term evolution is, and I was going to do that in a minute, so I'll take this now, just time now to explain. Uh, and, and this is what Darwinists do. They equivocate on the term evolution. Now, you know, and as many people, when they hear that word, it's, it's an initially a controversial concept anyway when you hear the word term evolution, but there's actually two... Uh, two basic concepts of evolution. There's what's called microevolution, and there's another thing called macroevolution. Let me explain what I mean by micro and macro. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say, uh, you, do you have a dog? Do you, do you personally have a dog? I, I had not, a dog, but let's okay. not go there. Okay, sorry. Well, uh, let's just say, for instance, you did have a dog and you had a chihuahua. I had a real dog. Okay, all right, sorry. <laughs> let's just say, for argument's sake, though, you had a chihuahua. A chihuahua is not a big dog, right? No. Well, I mean, do you think a chihuahua would last very long in the Arctic? No. The chihuahuas were actually bred, in, and I think they were, came from Mexico in a hot climate. Okay, and so imagine a chihuahua on one end of the scale, imagine just a whole bunch of dogs, a chihuahua on one end of the scale, and there's actually hairless chihuahuas who don't have any hair, and then you imagine a uh, St. Bernard. And you have all these other kinds of dogs in between. You've got big, small, do- big dogs, small dogs, and uh, another interesting dog is, this, of course, the Labrador Retriever, which do you know the Labrador actually has webbed feet, and they're bred for you know fishing and things like that. But that's what it's for. For say. hunting, okay. exactly. So, um, so you've got a huge variation of dogs. You've got Chihuahua on one end, you've got a uh, Saint Bernard on the other end. Well, that is variation within a species. Yeah. In other words, it's variation. In other words, there are small changes. You, the Chihuahua is a dog, and the Saint Bernard is a dog. They're they're all dogs, and you know all the dogs in between. They don't change from dogness; they're still a dog. Right, right. Well, that's that is an example of microevolution. That that, and this is what uh, this is what the intelligent design theorist. Are uh, agree with that there is evidence of microevolution, and what yeah. they mean by that is that animals, uh, 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 organisms adapt to their environment. Human beings are the same way. Uh, for example, in cold climates, uh, Eskimos or Inuits uh, have developed over their eyes after after long periods of time of living in cold, windy areas. They have developed a, a, a thing over their eyelid. It's called an epicanthic fold. You ever, you know, wonder why Oriental people or Asian people have their eye they, they have the slanted eyes? Well, the slanted eyes, the, the technical term for that is called an epicanthic fold. And what that is is, is an extra layer of skin over their eyelid, uh, to protect their eyes from the wind, they can actually look into the wind—a harder wind than you or I would, because they have that extra layer of skin. Well, what that is an example of? Another example of microevolution. Right. In other words, uh, there's an adapt. There's a, the, the uh, organism can adapt to its environment. But that's not a, that's not an example of macroevolution. What macroevolution says is that uh, these small changes within the organism accounts for all of the variation that you see in the entire world of all the animals, right. and that is just absolutely not the case. Um uh, macro evolution, uh, or, or excuse me microevolution cannot account for microevolution or uh, a macroevolution because the the mechanism itself just cannot account for that. The 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 uh, uh, um, this uh, Small changes over long periods of time cannot account for this let me just give you a few of the things that uh, that, that scientists yeah just a couple of these that scientists have tried to uh, I'm just going to list them here they have tried to explain these that have completely failed that naturalistic causes have explained it completely failed uh the origin of life how did the origin in other words how did the first molecule of life get here the origin of the genetic code naturalism can't explain that uh the origin of multicellular life uh naturalism can't explain that the origin of sexuality what i mean by that is the female and the male in, in all the animal species there's i mean it's not the evolution had to happen where both were, were complementary, where they could reproduce. So it can't. But naturalism, the Darwinian model, cannot account for that. Uh, the uh, the absence of transitional forms in the fossil record. What I mean by that is, if you dig down to the earth and you look at the layers of rock, you would expect to find the animals evolving over time. You, know, you, you may have seen the picture of the the monkey walking on his, his hands, and you see him gradually growing up to be a man and, yeah. and whatever. There's in the fossil record. There's absolutely zero evidence of that whatsoever. And and even uh, the uh, uh, Dar- the evolutionist uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who is a Darwinist, had to admit that on the basis of the evidence that he had to change his view of Darwinism because there's no evidence for tra- the, tr- the transition that you would expect to see. Um, and also, the uh, what's called the biological Big Bang in the Cambrian era. And the area of rock and the fossil rocks is called the Cambrian. They call it the Cambrian explosion. Essentially, what you have is before the Cambrian, called the Precambrian, the rocks below the Cambrian period, there's no life, and all of a sudden, there's an explosion of every major animal file in existence all at one time. But the problem is, is that the Darwinian model cannot account for this, and, uh, and so intelligent design is, um, is basically poised uh, to provide an answer for this. The uh, philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhns, who wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, published by the University of Chicago. Um, basically said that um, whenever cultures go through paradigm shifts, in other words, they, they shift from one scientific view to the other, there's a major upheaval, uh, this, and you can look back in the history of science and see that. At one time, it was believed that the Earth was flat. but. After long, after periods of observation, I mean, you just you can't argue that the Earth is flat anymore because we we sailed around it. We have we have spaceships that fly around it. So you eventually have to change your view, and that and that causes a scientific revolution. Uh, Also, it was once believed that the Earth. Uh, was the center of the solar system, and that the, everything revolved around the Earth. And that was called the Ptolemaic view of the, uh, of the universe, or the solar system, or not the solar system, the Ptolemaic view, which was replaced by the Copernican view, that the sun is at the center. And uh, this happened, and uh, that when people were shown the evidence, it was hard to believe because it has cultural implications, and, and intelligent design has cultural implications.
0: What is the status of the intelligent design movement right
1: now, uh, Briefly, yeah. yes. D- just to briefly summarize, there, the, the, one of the one of the best, to me, one of the best spokesmen for intelligent design is actually a law professor at University of California, Philip Berkeley, Johnson. Philip Johnson. And basically, he has started this whole thing. It started in 1992. He met at Southern Methodist University, and uh, he, he he has imposed what he's called the wedge, and he believes that. Uh, that Darwinism is, is has been won in the scientific field. In other words, the scientists are really know that this is a dying theory, but it is basically. It, it's left is to make the social case for it, that the social implications, some people think that if we accept intelligent design that we're all gonna become Christians and become yeah. a theocracy and that's not the case at all.
0: I think that's the fear that the right. society is. I has. think what
1: I think what intelligent design theorists want is to teach both sides of the issue yeah. so that people will have, be informed, to know that there is an alternative view to uh, Darwinistic, to blind naturalistic Darwinistic evolution. Yeah. And this is important because uh, where we came from has meaning for who we are and implications for politics and society in general, and it's very important. We're going to have to end on a note. Thanks a lot, Ted, for coming on the show. Ted Wright,
0: my guest, I would like to thank all of you for joining me. That concludes this episode of Giving an Answer. Be sure to join me again next time, and until then, goodbye and God bless.